וגם אני פתאום רואה את Welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolel, and it is such an honor and privilege to welcome you to our next episode featuring Dr. Eli Shapiro. I'm here together with our very own in Columbus and someone who lives just a few blocks down the street from me, Naomi Myers, and we are very excited about who we get to interview tonight and the things we get to bring to the community and to the masses. Naomi, thanks for coming on. And what interests you about Dr. Ellie Shapiro? Well, I'm very excited to be here, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very interested in anyone who can help me navigate this world of technology and how to both introduce it to my children and protect my children from it uh, and how we approach this, finding the best in technology and preventing the worst. Right. Now that is, it's one of those necessary, I don't want to say necessary evils, but it's one of those things that you can't really uh, live without and learning how to manage and take the good, leave behind the rest is what we want to cover tonight. Um, so Let's tell everybody about our guest. Dr. Ellie Shapiro is a licensed clinical social worker with a doctorate in education and specialist certificate in Jewish educational leadership. He is the creator and director of the Digital Citizenship Project, an adjunct professor for the City University of New York. Dr. Shapiro is a graduate of the Israeli School of Jewish Education and Administration. Wurzweiler School of Social Work, Turo College, and holds two licenses in school administration through the Queens College Postgraduate Educational Leadership Program. Ellie, thanks so much for joining Colotes. Oh, that was quite an introduction. I, I, I should walk around with that soundtrack every time I introduce myself to someone. I can just have that playing in the background. It's great. <laughs> no, that, that's special here. Um, so thank you for coming on. And I want to know if we could just start off for, for starters. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, who you are, and uh, what's your day job? Um, okay, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker, doctorate in education. My focus has always been uh, on the uh, social emotional functioning of, of kids and families. Um, and, uh, early on I was focusing on, um, promoting positive peer relations and addressing bullying, uh, school-based bullying. Um, and, uh, when doing my research on my doctorate, uh, the natural progression at the time from school-based bullying, uh, was to looking at cyberbullying. It was a new emerging issue, uh, in the mid two thousands, late two thousands, uh, so my research on uh, how uh, the prevalence of cyberbullying and what was promoting it and causing it led me to a whole host of research on uh, how technology was impacting uh, functioning, the intersection of technology and human behavior. Uh, so we saw how it impacted social functioning, psychological, behavioral, day-to-day functioning. And as a result of that, we developed the Digital Citizenship Project. Uh, which really was about promoting digital responsibility in the age of technology by helping individuals, families, uh, and even uh, expanding into the business realm 
uh, how technology impacts functioning and how we can really maximize the amazing awesomeness that technology has to offer and avoid many of the inherent challenges. And so we developed a curriculum around that. We developed uh, uh, community lectures, uh, consulting uh, with schools, with, uh, with businesses on workforce well-being and productivity, and overall looking at human behavior and technology in a way that when we started was really uh, novel. You know, now we're hearing a lot more about that, but uh, early on, uh, it was more of a novel concept. Cool. And how long have you been doing this for? Uh, the Digital Citizenship Project was founded in 2014, but the work in developing that prior to that, you know, started in 2007, eight in that in that time. Cool, cool. Because you know, growing as a millennial, which I could say with some pride or not so much pride, mm-hmm. but as a millennial growing up, I remember you know the there were the iPhones weren't really there. It was the i uh, the iPad, no, not iPad, the iPod, the Nanos. I remember that was a thing yeah. when I was in like seventh, eighth grade. Um, I don't even know if people listening actually know what that is, uh, if they're still around or not. So technology has evolved in such a, uh, such a large, um, covering so many more and new things. When you started technology in 20, was it, you said 2008 or so? Where, yeah. where was technology then? And when did you make that switch that, no, I'm diving right in full fledged, full force technology and social human behavior about it? So, you know, uh, I think the watershed moment was 2007 when the iPhone came out, because all of the challenges that technology presented all of a sudden became portable um, in, in a really uh, easy to use fashion. You could watch the uh, the um, Apple um, you know, with Steve Jobs, when he, if we, if we talked about the iPhone and all, all the changes that it was going to have and the effects it was going to have on society. And he was absolutely correct, both in the positive, um, and a little bit in the negative. I don't think he, uh, he focused as much on that, but really technology has been with us. Uh, you know, we can go back to the, you know, the 1400s when the printing press came out. Um, you know, every time technology advances, it has an impact on society. Uh, in more modern times, you know, since the uh, Industrial Revolution, I think that technology is just expanding at a faster and faster rate. But even if we look back to, um, let's say, when the radio came out, when the radio came out, for it to reach 50 million users uh, took 38 years from the time it hit market to 50 million users. When the television came out, uh, for it to reach 50 million users took about 14 years. When um, the internet came out, uh, it took about four years to reach 50 million users. Uh, when TikTok came out, it took about a, a day <laughs> to reach 50 million <laughs> users. So while you know technology advances, so does the ubiquitous nature of it. And its impact is really significant. So while we had 38 years to adjust socially and psychologically and behaviorally to the radio and 14 years to adjust to the television and develop social norms around it, Technology, it, it, it advances at such a rate and we acquire it at such a rate that we don't necessarily absorb it in the healthiest way that we could, which is why we experience. I, you know, I always ask my audiences, um, you know, how many of you have experienced what we call phantom vibrations? That's when your body's vibrating, but your phone's not with you. Like you get that sense. <laughs> it's, it's a literal physical sensation that 89% of people experience. And that really underscores uh, you know, the significant impact that technology is having on us. If, if we're literally experiencing 
physical sensations as a result of not being with our technology for, you know, a few minutes or, or whatever it is, uh, it really underscores the challenge that it presents on our overall functioning. Uh, so, you know, this this was some of the area of, of technology that I was looking at and, and seeing like significant impact on, uh, on, on social connectivity. I mean, not the digital, the real type of social connectivity, but impulsivity, disinhibition, compulsivity, desensitization, its impact on mindfulness, on resilience and grit, uh, you know, miscommunication, relationships, uh, you know, all these things. Uh, are impacted by technology. And if we're unaware uh, and don't don't really make thoughtful and deliberative decisions around our engagement with technology, then we are you know, going to hit all the negative parts about it and miss out on the real opportunities that it presents. Yeah, that's right. And you sound like a pretty intelligent guy. And uh, we, we thought that you would be able to take tough questions. So I was trying to think of okay. like, who could help me in Columbus, Ohio, to ask Dr. Ellie Shapiro the toughest questions. And of course, came to mind was Dr. Naomi Myers. So we have Naomi with us, who's also very passionate about this. And I want to turn it over to her to further press you about some of these issues and bring awareness to them. So um, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really enjoying that I get to meet you. Um, First of all, I really like that you acknowledge that there are both pros and cons to technology. I think there have been some promotion of basically phones are evil and the computer's evil and there's nothing good about them. And I I don't know that that's really a good approach in this uh, society nor in this school systems. Uh, But as you talked about how quickly Uh, technology advances as someone who knows what a card catalog and a Walkman are, um, even trying to navigate the fact that when my sons were in um, uh, junior high school, that I could get them phones and they could only have keyboards that they actually had to, you could get a phone that you could only text with. And when my next children got to the same age, I couldn't get a phone without internet access for all the money in anywhere that they just didn't exist. You had to have Wi-Fi enabled. How do you recommend that parents who don't have access to your lectures or the schools that you're at, how do they educate themselves? Because that has been one of the biggest struggles is the technology is going so quickly that just trying to keep up with what I'm supposed to keep up with to make sure that my kids have some idea what's going on with, I struggle that there's no real way to become educated as a parent. So I think the answer might be a little less satisfying um, than you might've been hoping for. There are so many resources uh, on technology and uh, its impact, you know, just doing a Google search on technology and teens, there, there's so much information, so much data out there. Um, I can tell you um, on a day-to-day basis, uh, two of my favorite go-to information, because I'm a parent as well, and I don't know everything about technology. I have to stay up to date as well as a parent, not not just as a lecturer and a researcher, but um, 
you know, there's the day-to-day, one of the criticisms of researchers, it's all, you know, it's all pie in the sky and theoretical uh, type stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I have the same challenges of raising teens with technology. And, you know, they come to me and tell me that everyone has a this or everyone has a that, this app, that app. I'm not even going to name any because it'll change by the time this is broadcast. <laughs> um, but um, there are two uh, go-tos that I have. One is a, uh, it's a website called Smart Social. Uh, a guy named Josh Oaks. And Josh Oaks spends a lot of time researching all the latest um, apps and games and talks about them. And he has these very quick uh, video clips that he puts out. And parents can easily be educated on that. Uh, so that's one resource that I use. Another resource that I use is something called Common Sense Media. Uh, Common Sense Media is is a great resource for for any game, video, app, um, and really goes through the pros, the cons, uh, what parents need to look out for, what kids say, what parents say, what the app developers say. Uh, and so those are the ways of staying educated on those issues, uh, just from a day-to-day standpoint. But the most important thing is that parents, you know, if, if you wanted to sum this up and make this a, a two-minute uh, conversation, it's really all about being thoughtful and deliberative. And if you if you apply those two words to every aspect of technology, you're going to be successful with it. It's just about being thoughtful and deliberative. For many parents, uh, the strategy that they utilize to determine uh, what their children should or should not have access to is based on what everyone else is doing or what their child says, what everyone else is doing. So your child will come home and say, but everyone has fill in the blank. Uh, and as a parent, you don't want your child to be the only one without whatever fill in the blank includes. Uh, So, you know, sometimes you get that and sometimes you decide, okay, you know, I guess everyone has a smartphone. So let me give my child a smartphone. I guess um, Amazon is having a cyber Monday sale on Kindle. So let me get them a Kindle. Uh, And it's so important to understand the age appropriateness of the devices. It's so important to understand um, one, the device you're giving them two, the content you're giving them access to and, and three, and I think this is probably the most important piece is your child specifically. Every child is different and they're going to formulate a relationship with the technology different than other children. Uh, there are a whole host of studies that, uh, find correlations and relationships between, uh, technology engagement and mental health issues uh, anxiety, depression, uh, one of the greatest predictors of uh, social networking, texting addiction uh, is social anxiety. So kids with social anxiety specifically are more likely to develop unhealthy relationships with technology. So it's really understanding the devices, understanding the content you're giving your kids access to, uh, and also understanding your child themselves and making decisions based on, on those factors. Well, you bring up a great point because many families have multiple children and they're not cookie cutters of each other, nor are they the same ages typically. And so one of the struggles that I see parents having is if you have internet in your house and you have various devices about trying to filter or make sure that your children don't stumble onto things that they potentially shouldn't be stumbling onto. So, for example, if you have a third grader, a fifth grader, and a twelfth grader in the house, you can't filter everything based on the third grader, but you don't want the third grader to necessarily access the things that the twelfth grader may be able to access. 
how do you recommend or do you have uh, systems that allow you to individualize sort of what you allow, individualized bedtimes, all sorts of things like that? Yeah, so I, 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 I like the, how you brought in the bedtime piece to it because I think that, that really answers the question. You know, in, in, let's put technology aside. In every aspect of parenting, um, you're going to give your children at different ages, different leeway, different access, different in the levels of independence. And it's going to be based on their age chronologically, but it's also going to be based on their personality types and proclivities. And, um, and all of that goes into all the decisions that we make around parenting. And, you know, we happen to be talking about technology tonight, but thoughtful and deliberative applies to all aspects of parenting. Uh, you know, uh, one example I like to give is if you have a particularly impulsive child or aggressive child and they're turning 16, you may have or should have second thoughts about letting them get a driver's license. Just because they've hit a chronological age doesn't mean that they're ready for the responsibility that goes along with it. And similarly, with technology, we need to make, you know, different decisions around it. And I think a couple ways of dividing it up is looking at what do they need versus what do they want? Uh, and also, what do they need portable versus what do they need access to? And it's a question even as adults, we should be asking ourselves as well. Uh, but certainly with kids, do they need their own device or do they just want their own device or can they benefit from the use of a family device? And even within a family device, you know, just getting to the pragmatics again, you can set up a family device, a computer that has different logons, that has different uh, accessibilities. So if you have, let's just say, uh, a MacBook, you can set up four or five different profiles on the MacBook, each with their own login and each with their own parental control settings through something called screen time. And you can set uh, your 12th grader can have uh, access to their uh, username on the, on the same computer. And on that computer, you can have them set for a, for a web browser that blocks inappropriate content. And then your, uh, your uh, 10th grader uh, might have a web browser that is a whitelist browser, and the whitelist browser only allows pre-approved sites. And then your 8th grader may have access to the computer, but there's no web browser, and there's just specific apps that you've given them access to. And so you can set up a computer that way. Um, I, I happen to be a fan of Apple products, uh, mainly because I'm a shareholder, uh, but uh, secondarily, because I, I just think that their resources and uh, the user interfaces are just uh, so user-friendly and intuitive to be able to set up what your needs are for individual children. I'm sure that uh, PCs can do similar things. I'm just less familiar with them. But again, anytime you're going to make a device available for your child, you need to know the capabilities of that device and, um, and, and know how to set it up in an appropriate way, to your point, that is both age-appropriate and appropriate for that specific child. Great. So do you, um, aside from the, the use of Macs, do you know of any other uh, companies or anyone who makes things so that, let's say, your kids do have iPads or they each have a computer for school with Internet access? So, for example, many schools use Chromebooks. Right. Those aren't as easy to program and filter out as some of the other um, Apple products. That so do you? Yeah. So so Apple products, iPad would be the same thing. iPhone, iPad, anything with an iOS operating system um, is is really user friendly in that way. 
when schools issue devices and, you know, they, my, my experience has been that schools tend to be uh, pretty thoughtful and deliberative with the devices that they give their children. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, uh, they do a lot of research, they purchase, uh, they have uh, IT people that set the devices up. Uh, so it only is supposed to give access to things that are appropriate. I don't know of many situations where a school is issuing technology devices, whether it's a Chromebook or whether it's uh, an iPad uh, or whether it's some other tablet that they don't have it pretty, pretty locked up. Um, and if, if your school is not uh, providing that level of uh, restriction or device management, that's certainly a conversation to have with your school leader. Uh, I don't think any school leader would intentionally uh, put children in harm's way by providing devices that aren't appropriately uh, set up. Oh, I, I can assure you that I, I can't imagine any school leader would intentionally do it, but the amazing yeah, so amount of if, intelligence our children have to work around what is set up for them sometimes is astounding. Yeah, uh, kids do, uh, you know, are, are creative with technology. And, and again, I, my experience has been that a properly set up Apple product, um, it, it just seems to be uh, the most secure. Uh, but as far as I know, there are always uh, ways to bypass in some way. Uh, but if if uh, a parent sees something that they're concerned about and they communicate it to the school, the IT professional on staff can usually uh, address whatever that workaround uh, was. Thank you. That's wonderful. I think Samsung's coming after you now, but uh, <laughs> I haven't have always felt the same. And I'll just uh, follow up saying um, my wife and I have um, iPhone 12s, I think. I know it's dated now the 13s out, but um, it, it's the easiest thing uh, we could. We split a password um, and then we control what we, you know, the sites that are allowed and not allowed. It's like it, it takes a second to do. And it's uh, we've never so far never. uh we're able to get past it or has seen someone get past it. So for sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of times parents will say, Oh, my kids, you know, uh, hack the device or something like that. In most cases, the vast, vast majority of cases, it's because it's the same password you use for everything. So if you're using the same password for everything, and in most times you'll have at some point done it in front of your kid, or you were in the middle of cooking or doing something, you told them the password, and you didn't even realize you told them the password. And then it's like uh, the same password for every device. So that's, that's the biggest hack that kids come up with is that we sort of give away the password or we make it too easy. But if you remember a number of years ago, there was a, there was a shooting in uh, San Bernardino, California, and the CIA was trying to gain access to the iPhones of the shooters and they could not get through the phone. Um, and I know it's a slightly different access issue, but you know, it really does give you an indication uh, that these devices are, are pretty secure uh, and, uh, if you have passwords that, uh, are not obvious, like, you know, your anniversary or, you know, wife's birthday or dad's birthday or whatever it is, uh, it's highly unlikely that they'll get through. One of the things that, uh, kids do get through is if you, even if you don't put a, a browser or you block the Safari browser, sometimes apps, if you go through an app, 
uh, in the about, sometimes there are browsers built into the apps themselves. Uh, and sometimes kids can get through uh, that way. They're not very functional browsers, uh, but you know, kids feel like they've, they've hacked the system. And even within that, there's multiple settings, uh, just in the iPhone specifically, uh, turning off the browser is, is the Safari browser is one way, but then to block the other ones, there's another setting that you can access, uh, as well. It's, it's not, uh, from an audio perspective, it's, it's not easy to describe, but there for almost every scenario where you, you know, you think that the, uh, product doesn't do what you think it should do. It probably does what you want it to do. You just have to figure out how to do it. Oh, that's so scary. you bring up a very good point, though, because I think you're absolutely right. It's very easy to lock down apps. It's very easy to if you're going to just have certain websites that um, you allow your child to use. I think the question is when you're allowing your child either to do research or to start exploring the Internet, because I think that we have to teach our children how to use something appropriately how do we set up some guardrails around the internet? Because I find that the hardest thing to try and allow some use of in an age appropriate manner, but at the same time, try and prevent access to things that shouldn't be accessed. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. So um, I can just tell you what I've done with my own children with that is, I, you know, all my kids started out with uh, with no browsers on, on devices that they had, and they sort of graduated to having a whitelist browser. And what that meant was, you know, as a parent, it meant you were being annoyed fairly regularly to be giving them access to specific sites that, that they want. And so one of the things I, you know, really uh, try to uh, share with parents and, and, and promote as a concept is that parenting is just exhausting. Uh, and we just have to accept that. It's exhausting today so much more than it used to be. Uh, and it just means if we're giving our kids technology, it just means that we're signing up for being bothered uh, and being approached uh, th- that they want access to this and that. And you know, when we view it as opportunities rather than bothers, it's really opportunities to have conversations. So they come in and say, oh, I want access to... Uh, this website or that website. Well, let's talk about that. What do you need it for? What's on that website? You know, if uh, if you have a boys, then it's probably a lot of sports stuff. Or if it's girls, it might be, you know, I don't mean to gender stereotype, but it might be, uh, you know, communication apps that, uh, you know, uh, an interesting from a gender uh, standpoint, boys tend to use technology for entertainment purposes and girls tend to use technology for uh, socializing and relationship purposes. And so the dynamic of uses is, is different. But even if you're talking about studying, so giving access when they need access to specific websites, as they get older, they come to you with more and more websites that they need access to uh, and, and sort of... Uh, um, engaging in that process. One of the things that, uh, you know, you can also do is a lot of websites that uh, have academic information that they may want access to, uh, they have apps and the app sort of allows you just to navigate within the app setting as opposed to going outside of that. So whether you're using a wireless browser or specific apps uh, that give them access to content without the web browser, either way, um, it's a strategic process. It's a thoughtful process. It's a communication process. And one of the rules that I always had with my kids, whatever app or access they were asking me for, there was a 24-hour turnaround time. So it was never an impulsive 
uh, decision. Oh, I have to have access to this app. Okay, I'll think about it and we'll discuss it in 24 hours. So there was always that delayed gratification piece built into the process. And oftentimes after 24 hours, they, they wouldn't even follow up. Uh, you know, it was something that was I- impulsive in that moment. Uh, and then also, you know, being sure I remember uh, when uh, my, my, one of my kids, uh, was, they were doing reports on presidents and, um, and they were going to do research online on different presidents. And, and when my, my child uh, got Bill Clinton as the assignment, uh, I called the teacher and said, let's go with a different president. You know, so, you know, that's being engaged in communicating and, and making sure that the what they're going to have access to should be age appropriate, uh, you know, for that, uh, you know, for that child. Excellent. Yeah, that is great. Thank you, uh, Ali. So I heard you speak no, in this past November 24th, 25th, something like that. And it was a Friday morning. It was at the uh, the national convention hosted by Goodith Israel of America. And you gave a session, I think it was like 11 o'clock right before lunch. And you spoke right after Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yosef Viner, right after that talk, uh, Rabbi, the, you know, executive vice president, Rabbi Chaim David Zwiebel basically announced to everyone, why wasn't this the keynote? And I think he was referring to, you said a host, a whole host of statistics, this, you know, plain and dry facts that the, the, you know, the the statistics don't lie, but liars make statistics. You've probably heard that one before, but uh, in any event, I want to know if you could share with our listeners, some of the things that you shared with uh, the audience there, because that's when, for lack of a better term, I got hooked on your information. So can you do that for us? So it's interesting. Um, I got a lot of good feedback about that lecture. Um, it was really only about 20 minutes. Maybe that's why people liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it, it was interesting because generally I'm pretty expansive and I try to cover a lot of ground when I speak because the issues around technology are so vast um, and and so all-encompassing that there's, there's, there's so much to talk about. Um, but in that space, I really focused on one issue and, and really on, on a very surface level. Uh, and that, that was the issue of distraction, the relationship uh, that we have with technology and how it serves as a distraction in functioning. Um, so I, I think if I recall correctly, you know, we talk about technology and it, you, you had asked the question, when did things really change? So I told a story over uh, in the 1950s when the Lubavitcher Rebbe first became the Rebbe. It was the mid late 1950s. Um, he had a meeting with a woman named Hanna Sharfstein uh, who came to me with him, who had met with him on numerous occasions. And, and this one time she had brought a tape recorder with her and she asked the Rebbe if it would be okay if she recorded the session. And the Rebbe said, no, he, he didn't want her to do that. Um, she assumed maybe he wasn't comfortable having, you know, the content recorded or, or the meeting recorded, but he explained to her that if there's a tape recorder sitting on the table while we're talking you're not going to be focused on our conversation. You're going to be focused on the tape recorder. You're going to be wondering if the gears are turning. You're going to be wondering if you have enough tape left. You're going to be wondering if the batteries are still working. And when you, when you have that device there, it simply serves as a distraction and reduces our ability to be in the moment and the ability to focus. And it's fascinating that this is in the 1950s. And again, 
it wasn't advanced technology that we think of technology today. It was a tape recorder. But even a tape recorder serves as a distraction. And the current research around technology and phones, smartphones, that the mere presence, I encourage every listener, just type in here, Google search term, the mere presence of a device. That's all you have to type in. And dozens of studies will come up on how just the device being there on the table serves as a distraction and reduces cognitive functioning. We see this uh, in schools academically, uh, you, not even touching the device, not even looking at, at the device, not even looking at the screen, just the mere fact that it is sitting there on the table reduces cognitive functioning. And we see it in the business world as well. Uh, if you want to have a focused, engaged, uh, immersive uh, experience, you can't have the phone on the table. It just the quality of that interaction, the quality of that engagement uh, is, is significantly reduced. Furthermore, um, you know, um, there's a, a great book called Flow. I'm not going to, uh, I always mispronounce the uh, author's name, but the book is called Flow. And he identifies that it takes about 20 minutes to achieve flow, which is this high, high level of functioning where you're maximizing your, your uh, focus, your cognitive abilities, but it takes about 20 minutes to immerse yourself into that state of flow. Uh, and for most of us, we will check our device every five to 10 minutes, whether we get a notification or not. It's just a compulsion to check our device. If there's a void of activity on any given minute, we pull out our phones and we check it. And so if we are doing that, we are never actually achieving that flow of focus. If our phone is there and we, we check it just randomly, or if we do get notifications, uh, we're never achieving our maximum ability of productivity, efficiency, and and uh, the ability to delve into the work that we're doing. And so for most of us, we're not achieving our maximum potential because of just the distraction of the devices. And I found it amazing that in the 1950s, intuitively, the Lubavitcher Rebbe knew that, that this, the devices, again, the mere presence of the device uh, serves as a distraction. Now, we talk a lot about smartphones, uh, but the same thing applies to a flip phone as well. If you have a flip phone, and I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, I've been in many situations where, uh, you know, prominent people are sitting with their flip phones, checking them and in, in the device. Even we, we tend to focus on the content, uh, and not on the device itself and not on the impact that it has on functioning. And so it's, it's really important to, again, thoughtful and deliberative. Understand your relationship with technology. Understand the impact that it's having you. Be aware. Be mindful of the role that it plays. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a whole another area. I don't think I, I touched on this at the uh, Gooda Convention, but there's a whole um, area of, of research and, and science on brain functioning, uh, something called the default mode network of the brain. Uh, when I was in college, which uh, is a lifetime ago, uh, in the, in terms of technology and, and advances in, in science and medicine. Um, you know, we learned that people need breaks and need to rest because the brain needs to rest and relax. What we actually find when you do MRIs, when the brain is not engaged in intentful activity, uh, it's not that it's less active. In fact, there are certain parts of the brain that are more active during a restful state. And that's, that's been, uh, termed the default mode network of the brain. And there is a lot of research that, uh, that uh, suggests that when the default mode network of the brain uh, is interrupted or it is not functioning in a uh, regular pattern, 
and and have the opportunity to, to activate it it correlates with a whole host of mental health issues and and health issues in general and so technology has presented us with uh, an interference with the ability to activate the default mode network of the brain so in in you know years ago if we were uh, you know walking down the street we would just walk down the street and we'd sort of zone out uh, and that's good that's good for us because it activates the default mode network and there's a whole host of health um, positive um, benefits from that. But now when we walk down the street, we're on our devices, it's, we're engaged in intentful activity. It inhibits the default mode network of the brain and the long-term impact of it uh, can be significant. And that I, I think is a par- partially contributing to our elevated states of anxiety today and and overall mood dysregulation that we experience. Uh, throw on top of that a global pandemic, it certainly hasn't helped. And a global pandemic that encouraged uh, you know, increased use of technology. Um, and it's not to knock the technology because it would have been pretty bad if we didn't have the technology during uh, this, this pandemic. But um, the idea of, of, of taking breaks from the technology for distraction reasons, for, for uh, anxiety, mental health reasons, it's so important that we, we take that separation. And if I were to ask you or, or ask the audience, when is it that you have the most uh, peaceful uh, experiences and, and social connections with your friends and that you're most engaged and not distracted, it's Shabbos. And, and the reason that is, is because we are not distracted by the devices. We have the opportunity for the default mode network to be engaged. We have the opportunity to rest and recover uh, from the chaos of the week that interferes with our functioning. And so we have the opportunity on, on so many levels to bring a little bit of that into the week for us. So whether it's just not taking your phone out, every compulsion, every activity, putting it away, not keeping it on your desk. Uh, In my own family, we do something called going dark for dinner. When it's dinner time at home, there's just no technology at the table. Just that 15 minutes, that 20 minutes, it really has a positive impact on an individual and family functioning. I love that. And I'm going to follow up on just a couple of points. Something that I find very interesting in your remarks, and uh, I'm wondering if it was thoughtful and deliberate, but you mentioned how um, it's not so much about the content. It's the concept of, um, you know, letting our brains function. And you're not, I, I don't even think for, I don't even think once this entire episode, you've used the word pornography. You haven't focused at all about the inappropriate material. And it's quite, there could be a lot of it, online, but that's not where your focus is. Is that deliberate? Have you tried to make it more than just about that? So my, the development of the digital citizenship project was in response to a singular narrative that we were seeing in the community, which was on the content, which was on filters. And it's an important aspect of it, but you know, what we developed and the research was really to expand and have a more sophisticated way of thinking about our relationships with technology and, and the content, there's a whole host of issues with content and, and, you know, um, pornographic material or uh, graphic violence. Also um, all the content are issues as well, but if we just limit the conversation to the content, we're really doing a disservice uh, to ourselves and to the community as a whole. And it just needs to be a more expansive, more sophisticated conversation about our relationship with technology. And for the vast majority of us, we are impacted 
uh, by the overall relationship with technology. And, and the content is, is a, yeah, I don't want to say a small part of it. It's a part of it. It's, you know, but it's, it's so much greater than just the content. Right. For sure. No, that, that, that's right. Go ahead. I'm curious, as you talk about, as we, you mentioned filters and our relationship with the technology, something I've noticed, and I wondered what your thoughts are that my children's ability to actually approach a stranger, like at a grocery store, or we're going shopping and you want a different size of a dress, then I'll turn to my daughter and say, well, just go ask. And they're like, you want me to talk to them? And I'm like, yeah, I want you to go up and say, you know, and I almost am having to teach my child who can text and is a bright person, but how do you approach someone and, and be respectful and ask for something, which is something that they do so little of now? Is that something that you see or you have? Yeah. So there's two, there's two sides to this coin. One is the uh, diminished capacity for social interaction. Uh, you know, that's one, one side of it. And the other side of it is something called the online disinhibition effect. Um, so let, I'll start with, with the first part. UCLA did a fascinating study uh, a number of years ago, and it's been replicated numerous times, where they measured kids' ability to read facial expressions and social cues. Uh, and so they got a baseline, and then they sent them to sleepaway camp without any technology. And what they found was that after only five days of being without the technology, their ability to read facial expressions and social cues and form meaningful connections with peers vastly improved. So it teaches us two things. One is that digital technology is having a negative impact on the quality of our social interactions and, and our ability to engage in, uh, in social, uh, social relationships. And whether it's in being in the store, communicating with someone, um, or whether it's with friends, our ability uh, in the digital age is, is compromised. The other side of it, the flip side, is that we can improve it just by taking breaks from technology. So we can uh, develop those skills because we're put into situations where we have the opportunity to develop those skills, which is why it's so important to develop time where technology is awesome. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And we should use it. But we also should develop times where, you know, in a deliberative way where we're not using technology. So whether it's you know, before bedtime or it's, you know, during dinner or, you know, when we're in the car, maybe, you know, just finding those opportunities to separate from technology uh, will give a lot of, you know, opportunity to develop those social skills in a, in a more meaningful way. So that's, that's side one of it. The other side of it is uh, what psychologist John Suller identified back in 2004 as something called the online disinhibition effect, that people are more likely to do or say something uh, in the digital realm than they are in a face-to-face conversation because they're less inhibited, which is why social anxiety in particular predicts unhealthy relationships with technology. If I have discomfort engaging with people in a face-to-face conversation, but I can do it online and I don't feel that discomfort, I'm going to become pretty dependent on those online interactions. And so what we see is that people are more likely to do or say something online than they are in a face-to-face conversation. Uh, and it's not a new concept. In, anyone who took uh, Psych 101, you learned about Stanley Milgram and the uh, electroshock studies. Um, and he was really studying post-World War II obedience. But what he found was that when people were made to be anonymous, they delivered longer, stronger, and even fatal shocks. 
So the digital realm actually provides us with a level of anonymity, even if it's not a pure anonymity, even if it's a relative anonymity. So if I were to send you an email from my email address, ellie at ellieshapiro.com, it's clear who it is. I know you know who it is. But because it's through the digital realm, there's a perceived anonymity, and I'm more likely to do or say something that I wouldn't normally do or say. And so understanding that that is the relationship we have with technology, and that is something that the digital realm promotes, if we're aware of it, then we can make better decisions around it. So there's two sides to that piece of, you know, the the ability to communicate with other people, to self-advocate. We're definitely more, look, even as adults, there are some conversations, difficult conversations are hard to have in person. It's sometimes easier to shoot off an email or a text uh, because of what uh, Dr. Seller identifies as the online disinhibition effect. So uh, anytime we can avoid those, you know, the discomfort of those face-to-face conversations uh, and kids growing up today uh, that where their relationships are not necessarily established, although sometimes they are in the digital realm, they're certainly developed in the digital realm, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult for them to have um, what we would, I guess, classically call uh, meaningful, rich, or engaging conversations outside of that. Well, okay. So you touched on the mental health part of technology, and I'm now going to reference uh, something from, I'm sure some of you have heard of, Simon Sinek, who I call Simon Sinek my Gaius Rosh Hashiva. Um, he has a couple talks that I just find fascinating um, on TED Talks, and there are you can find them online. Um, he has one that that went viral, where he talked about what happens when we our eyes meet the screen, and there's like this dopamine dopamine release or something like that. And he made this interesting point, um, and I'm curious if you agree, disagree, or you want to expand on it. When we do that, when we just hand our kids to uh, technology, like, I don't want to babysit you now, but, you know, the screen's over there. Um, honey, enjoy. That's kind of the equivalent of opening up the cabinet and saying, you see that scotch? Enjoy, right? Because they're both doing the same thing, maybe different doses, <laughs> pun intended. But, you know, do you agree with that? Do you think there's some of that going on here? I want to hear your thoughts on that. So there, there's a few things. One, there's an interesting observation that uh, it's only with drugs and technology where the consumers are called users. Um, so there's an interesting observation with with that. Um, I don't think the parallel is. I mean, it, it, it's cute, uh, but I don't think it's as clear because technology serves a significant function of human existence. Um, the argument could be made for Scotch, but. You know, not really. We can get by. Off uh, camera. Yeah, we can get by without scotch. Uh, So it's not quite the same thing. Um, Certainly, uh, you know, the the brain receptors, uh, you know, there's an appeal to technology. But we also, it's all about balance. You know, uh, we tend to think in terms of technology, like teens and technology, um, I really want to roll it back a little bit because the impact that technology has on the uh, brain of a, a zero to five-year-old is so much more impactful and powerful than it has on the brain of a 16-year-old. Um, it, the dependence that children develop at that critical stage of development in the early childhood years on screens uh, is the reason why the American Pediatric 
Society recommends no screen time for under two years old. And then from two to five, they recommend less than an hour a day. Um, one study that I saw, they, they had um, two-year-olds playing with one of those Simon Says games, uh, not the Simon Sinek game, but the Simon Says where it lights up the different colors and, and it's very exciting. And then they gave him an, an iPad that did something similar. And when the researchers would ask the child to give them the device, the children were much more likely to give the Simon Says game than they were the iPad. So that early dependence that they develop on the devices uh, is very powerful. Um, and you you see it in restaurants and in the mall, and you see it on airplanes, that if a two, three, four-year-old can't get their device going right away, if the screens don't go on, you see the tantrums that they have and, and how significant it is. That really underscores the degree of dependence that they have on their devices. Um, another thing that we're doing wrong in the early childhood age is when it used to be when you take your two-year-old to the doctor and get a shot, the mother would pick up the child, they'd rub their back, they'd make them feel good, they'd increase that mother-child connection. The child learns that my parents can take care of me, that they can come for me and make me feel good. But today, when we take those same two-year-olds to the doctor and they get the shot, uh, what do we do? We give them the phone and it calms them down relatively quickly. But what are they learning? What's the lesson that they're walking away with is that when I'm distressed, when I'm upset, when I'm in pain, a screen will calm me down. And this is like a fundamental first experiences, like brain mapping experiences that are very hard to undo later on in life. So that worries me a lot, the early childhood. And and I've been doing a, a lot of lecturing specifically to early childhood parents about this issue. Um, so um, I don't think it's as, as gloom and doom as some people present it as, uh, although I am a big fan of Simon Sinek as well. Um, you know, start with why and, and all his other work. Uh, but the, the, the relationship to technology and, and drug use, I, I don't know if I buy into that as, so as direct um, as, uh, as, as some people might promote it. It certainly makes a good headline, right. uh, but I just don't think it's as direct. We need to be thoughtful and deliberative. Certainly the younger age I'm more concerned about, but we have to find balance and, and we have to assess and look at our children. Is the technology interfering with their functioning? When we think about drug use, um, you know, currently uh, technology addiction is not in the DSM. Uh, I, I assume it will be relatively soon. But um, it's not there yet. Uh, so the way I tend to think about it is in terms of uh, when we say about technology addiction is, is it interfering with primary role obligation? And depending on what your age is, depending on what your responsibilities are, primary role obligation uh, will differ from person to person. The same way when it comes to alcohol or drugs, we don't define an addiction based on the amount that one consumes. We define it primarily by the consequences that one experiences and yet continues to engage in it. So similarly with technology, if we're seeing that our children are having consequences where school is becoming an issue and socially it's becoming an issue and they're not going out and they're only spending time on the screen, I would address that like I would, uh, you know, similarly a substance abuse concern where we have to, you know, really take a hard look at it. And, and, you know, if a child is demonstrating responsibility across the board, you know, looking at, the DSM used to have something uh, called global assessment of functioning. It doesn't have it anymore, but I think it's such a valuable tool. We have to look at the entire child. It's not about whether I was on a screen for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. It's what does my whole picture look like? Am I 
a healthy, responsible child uh, fulfilling my primary role obligations. And, and the same uh, applies to adults as well. And I think that we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis, uh, is technology interfering uh, it, 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 with my life or is it enhancing my life, right? It's a, it's a question. And every given day, um, you know, the, and any given point in the day, the answer might be different. Uh, is it an enhancement or is it an intrusion? And we need to find more opportunities to be able to say that it is enhancing my life rather than serving as an intrusion in my life. And it's same thing for the kids as well. You know, uh, it's okay for a child to play a video game, again, assuming the content is okay, but it's okay for them to play a video game. It's okay for them to uh, be in front of a screen and, and you know, uh, do schoolwork or, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about, you know, um, uh, synchronous and asynchronous learning and screens. And we definitely overdid it during COVID. But I think we can all agree that this whole global pandemic thing has not been I- ideal. Right. I think we all agree on that. Yeah. So the response was not ideal either. And it continues in many ways to not be ideal. But we did what we could do. We did the best we could. And and uh, you know, the time to sit back now and say, okay, where are we now? Where are we holding? What can we do to reduce um, the excessive amounts and looking at how it's impacting our overall functioning as individuals and as families um, and make those decisions around it. And it, it means, you know, it, the same way Walmart can roll back their prices, we can roll back some of our behaviors that we've become uh, accustomed to uh, just because how many uh, streaming services do we need to be subscribed to? You know, um, I can just say for myself, even, um, I noticed over the last three, four years, the amount of, of pop-up notifications that I've been getting on my phone just like just increased so significantly. I'm not even just talking about text or WhatsApp, but every app that's on my phone is now sending me notifications. So I, you know, did a, uh, an assessment for myself, uh, of what apps do I need and what apps do I need portable and what apps do I need notifications from and really started reducing the amount of notifications because again it serves as a distraction and it 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 interferes and it's intrusive rather than an enhancement and and our technology should be an enhancement it and if it's in serving as an intrusion we should make some changes well, that's great with all fairness to simon sinek i think he was saying it a little tongue-in-cheek but he wanted to make a point so yeah. i think you're correct on that ellie do we have time for one quick last question yeah sure okay when reading your bio I noticed that you have spoken for Torah Masora, Consortium of Jewish Day Schools, Chabad International Conference for Shluchim, Agudas Yisrael of America, and Yeshiva University. Now, this show, Kolot, is about diversity, bringing many voices from many different areas on one platform. Is your broad appeal strategic, and what has helped you in that process, or did we just run out of time? Um, we didn't run out of time, but, um, it, it definitely wasn't strategic. Um, it was, it wasn't strategic. I do feel blessed that I get to work with, um, such a diverse cross section of the Jewish population. Um, it, it's, it's an honor for me to be able to, you know, work with, you know, a good Israel of America and the OU and Yeshiva University and, 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 uh, you know, all the other organizations, Chabad. Um, I, I don't have a theological agenda in my presentations. Everything I present on is data and research. Um, and, and I, and I'm, I'm respectful of different 
uh, theological positions on technology. You know, and and one of the reasons that it was strategic that I did not engage in uh, Jewish philosophy as it relates to technology, because I I genuinely believe that you can have opposing um, hashkafas, um, and they're both correct. So you could say that technology is a machla, it's a magefa, it's the worst thing to ever happen to us, and you'd be correct. You could also say that it's a gift from God. And it was given to us to balance and, and utilize in the service of God. And you'd also be correct. They're both correct. Um, but neither one matters to me because I'm just looking at the data and the research. So I guess I'm taking a more simplistic view um, th- than the philosophical approach. Um, and I think that that resonates because, um, because I don't take a philosophical approach uh, to technologies. I mean, I do have my own opinions, but it's generally not what I share uh, in, in my presentations, because I'll, I present to diverse audiences. We're in the same room. I have people that are embracing technology use and I have people that are pushing back on technology use. And its impact on social, psychological, behavioral, and day-to-day functioning doesn't matter. It, it, that impact doesn't care if you love technology or hate technology. The impact is the same. And so uh, for those that are pushing back, I guess it gives them... Um, you know, scientific uh, support for pushing back on technology. And for those that are embracing technology, it gives them scientific um, uh, pause for caution to approach it in a responsible and thoughtful way. So um, it wasn't strategic. Uh, I, you know, I've just been speaking my message um, and, and I'm grateful that a diverse grouping of of uh, and cross section of the Jewish community has embraced it and and I guess appreciates what I have to say. Yeah, no, the reason why I asked that is because it, it, I felt it was a kiddush Hashem. I felt it was a beautiful thing that um, people rally around something that's a shared value, irrespective of where um, you know they agree or disagree with other areas of life. And it's very appropriate as we are. Um, approaching Parshas Yisra, where the Jewish people are referred to as Vayichan in the singular when they encamp by Mount Sinai. So the Torah refers to the Jewish people as in, in, a, in a singular way, as Rashi comments, because they were like one. And I always like to say, it's not that they were one because they all agreed with one another. Jews aren't good at that. But the reason why they were one is because they rallied around a shared value and the differences didn't define them. So I felt that those that's that's you know, rep- you represent that value of sticking to the facts, sticking to the things, not getting into thing. You know, the philosophical part, but f- but really focusing on the research, the data, and you want to share that with them, and they could take it or leave it. But this is you're staying focused, and you know, you use the words thoughtful and deliberate. But it sounds like it's all in one and the same. Yeah, and I think you know, I appreciate what you were saying. The Jews at Mount Sinai were unified, but not uniform. And the, 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 you had 12 different camps that camped separately, that when they, uh, you know, when they, at the splitting of the sea, there were 12 separate pathways that were transparent and they were separate, but they could see each other. And I think that there's a lot to learn from that. Um, and, uh, you know, we can value differences. Um, and uh, again, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that a, a diverse audience has embraced um, you know, what we speak about at the digital citizenship project. Well, some more power to you. This was amazing. Um, I hope that we'll be able to welcome you in person to Columbus when the time is right. Um, we would definitely be very 
um, excited to do so. There's a lot to learn from you. And I'll tell all of our listeners, um, I saw Ellie off camera with his family at, at the Gooda convention and Ellie's just, you're a mensch, you're a real, you're a family person. And, uh, it's a kiddish Hashem to see how you've really taken the society, uh, the issues of society and helped enhance, um, families in the Jewish community. So thank you for coming on. Thank um, you. Naomi, I, I think that we covered a lot, always room for more, but, uh, this was amazing. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Wow. So Naomi, that was uh, quite something. What were your takeaways? Well, my takeaways were uh, that uh, technology is not all evil and that you have to be very, as he said, thoughtful and deliberate about how you introduce and what you introduce to your children. And as I think all of us who are parents know, each child is not the same. And you have to think about how you're going to introduce these devices as well as their content to your children. And as we all know, parenting is work and technology is supposed to make our lives easier, but the introduction to technology to children is not going to be an easy road to embark upon. Right. It has a little bit of that uh, love and hate relationship aspect to it for sure. And and um, one of the things that I really um, that, that stuck out to me and I hope I'll put to practice is that 20 minute rule because I've noticed that, you know, when, when I hit that 20 minute mark minutes, 21 and on fly by. And now I like, I get it because I'm zoned in real, really zoned in. So uh, that, that was my personal takeaway. So thanks for doing this with me. I, I definitely gained a lot. Um, I guess you could ask my better half if I start applying anything um, <laughs> off camera but uh, we appreciate you coming on and hopefully this will be something we're thank Thank God. Baruch Hashem. We're, we're being listened to in five countries now. And uh, hopefully this will, will have a small part in enhancing other people's um, lives as it pertains to technology. And uh, may it be as a chos, a merit for us. And we hope that uh, all of our listeners enjoy. So this is Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein from Kolot, along with Naomi Myers signing off. Thank you so much for listening and looking forward to seeing you next time. To listen to all Kolot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvos at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, an engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.